0: Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast, it's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller.
1: Hello, a big edition of the World Nomads podcast this episode. Phil, have we bitten off more than we can chew? Three countries, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, all in the one podcast. Yeah,
2: does anybody know the home-lick maneuver? We may choke on what we're doing. I
1: know, there is so much. Tell us about Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. Where uh, are we thinking, imagining in our all right, heads? Well,
2: I mean, it's the quintessential Southeast Asia countries, right? South of China to the uh, west, of, no, east of Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> doing north, you know, doing north news when you go around the clock. To even, the east of Thailand. Can I
1: just say, even though I'd written it for him? <laughs>
2: <laughs> really mountainous part uh, yep. of the country there. And it has been colonised by the Europeans, of course. Indochine, Indochina, the French... Uh, colonised it for quite a while, and uh, some people will even argue that the Americans have done so since.
1: Well, there's a point. It has a very chequered history, Phil, surviving political regimes and war, the effects of which can still be felt. Now, in this episode, we'll chat with an amazing woman helping disadvantaged children access education. We'll hear from a wildlife conservationist on ethical travel through Southeast Asia, and she talks about something that I've unwittingly done. You know that coffee that you can have that's... Yes. Um, From I can't think of the animals. Yes, yeah, I've done that. No, no.
2: They feed the beans to the civet and then they yep. take the um, droppings and make the coffee out yeah. of it. Yeah,
1: so that happens naturally. Right. But you shouldn't be
2: capturing, the capturing to them do that. and
1: feeding them. So I've actually learnt something um, from Ash and I'm sure that you will okay. too. Um, we will also touch on hiring a motorbike. Everyone talks about hiring motorbikes when you go to Southeast and, Asia.
2: And Vietnam is the most complicated of the places to know whether you're Properly licensed or not?
1: Yeah, I'll leave you to get all the details for show notes. On <laughs> it's that one, one of one.
2: my favourite topics:
1: <laughs> the logistics of crossing borders between those three countries. But we cannot get started without your quiz question, Phil.
2: Okay. Uh, over the summer of 2018, the queues to go up the Eiffel Tower have become so long. The staff have gone on strike. Apparently, they're absolutely sick of being abused by hot and bothered tourists. Though apparently, they've changed which lift you can use, and people are getting in the wrong queue and queuing for hours, and then finding out they're in the wrong one, and they're abusing stuff. Anyway, they've gone on strike. But here's the quiz question, all right? How many people visit the Eiffel Tower every year?
1: Find out at the end of the episode. <laughs> In our last destination podcast on Guatemala, we talked to Cassie, who was in Antigua. She was helping out with the recovery after the volcano. Yep. 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 We've got her back on because she was so popular. <laughs> <laughs> Cassie, <laughs> this time we're talking Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. You are really a font of knowledge, aren't you? You're
2: very well-travelled.
3: Yeah, you can say that. Cambodia is definitely my forte. I lived there for four years, so I'd say it's my speciality area.
1: Great. Well, we're going to pick your brains on the logistics of travelling around Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos and you've written an article we can share, but you uh, have everything for us that you need to know about border crossings, visas, transport, changing money before you travel. You make it sound hard. Is it difficult travelling to those countries?
3: Honestly, no, it isn't. But I think a lot of it's just having the information before you go. Um, It just kind of puts your mind at ease a little bit. So some of the border crossings sometimes can be complicated, um, but there's a lot more horror stories than there are success stories. So I just thought I'd break it down into simple steps to make it easier for everyone.
2: All right. So so which are are the complicated borders to get over?
3: So when you're crossing the borders into Cambodia, especially from Thailand, there's quite a few scams, famously. Um, it's worth just keeping your passport with you at all times and doing everything yourself rather than kind of giving it to anyone else. So Sometimes people pose as officials and ask you for money and take your passport and run off. Um, most of the time they don't run off with your passport but they just take extra money that you really don't need to pay. What about you talk about having small change available? Because sometimes it helps to ease the process a little. They ask for money for a health check or they ask for money if you don't have your passport pictures or they say they're not the right size or something and it's like oh it's an extra three US dollars. So generally it just kind of helps to have in case of any um, unexpected costs that may arise but generally you wouldn't expect them to add up to any more than three to five USD.
2: How does it sit with you because you're encouraging corrupt
1: behavior?
3: Having lived in Cambodia for four years it's actually voted the second most corrupt country in the entire world after Venezuela. So you end up having to pay quite a few bribes for different things like um i was managing a guest house for example so you had to bribe the police a certain amount of money just to leave you alone or they would come in and kind of try and give monthly shakedowns and things or if you drive a bike or a car they ask you for bribes so it's kind of expected behavior and at the border's it generally helps to ease the way a little bit. Do I agree with it morally? No, um, yeah. but the police in Cambodia don't actually get paid enough to support themselves and their families, and they rely on the extra income that comes from this. So especially pre- prior to holidays and things like prior to Khmer New Year and different things, they there are a lot more police on the roads, for example. So they ha- they have enough money to support their families. <sighs>
2: In one of the articles we have uh, on world Nomad site about you know the the ethics of bribing um obviously you know as a as a as a travel insurance brand we can't condone illegal behaviour but of those course. who have got no problem with it um as i write say they like to consider it giving honor and respect to the officials that you're dealing with <laughs> <laughs> be
1: respectful. <laughs> And a smile goes a long way. That's
2: right. If you get pulled up, how much honour and respect do I owe you, officer?
1: (laughs) Will a smile count or do I need
3: to give you some money? Yeah.
1: Yeah. How important then is it to do your research before travelling to these countries?
3: I feel like everyone should always do their research before they travel to any country. Before I came to Guatemala, I was in El Salvador before that. And I did a lot of research before I went there because you read a lot of horror stories. um, But then you get there and it's not actually as bad as everyone makes it out to see. I just think wherever you go, it's worth knowing what you get, what what you're getting yourself in for in a lot of ways. So I'd always say do as much research as possible and, When you travel, you see so many other people reading all these blog posts, reading the guides, reading the different things. So I think it's really useful to share the information that we have. That's one of the reasons I love being a a World Nomads contributor, because I can share the knowledge that I gain from going to all these awesome places. What about currency
1: exchange? Um, I've already said that I've been to Vietnam a few times, and I've found that even going into a a tailor, you get a better exchange rate than you would at the airport. But a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing that. What would would your tip be?
3: I always change money in the markets. I found that I got the best rates in the markets, but I know that a lot of people don't feel comfortable walking around with much money on them, especially in the markets. So I would say change little and often rather than changing a lot at one time. Um, Generally, I find that Withdrawing cash from ATMs gives you a pretty good exchange rate as well with certain bank cards and um, prepaid cards that are available now, like TransferWise and uh, Monzo's and Revolut. They give you generally pretty good rates. Um, so it's not worth going into a country with several thousand US, for example. I'd say it's always worth going in with a couple of hundred maximum and then pulling out cash from you there.
2: Plenty of ATMs in uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, now.
3: Surprisingly, yes. Uh, Laos, maybe less so than other places. But Cambodia, when I first arrived to the little beach town I was living on, there was no ATMs and you had to drive half an hour to get to the nearest bank. But now there are six in that little area, so they're just cropping up everywhere.
2: Thanks, Cassie. Some practical tips for travel there. And you can read more of Cassie's article in show notes, which also covers visas and tips for motorbike riding, which we'll have more on in this episode of the World Nobel
1: podcast. Southeast Asia backpackers have been the voice of, for the backpacking community ever since the launch of the first print magazine in 2009. So that's how it started with British backpacker Nikki. She launched this business as a magazine initially. So we're touching base with her to find out who she's talking to almost 10 years later now that she's online and what advice she's giving on travel to Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam.
4: Well, I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, it's really developed over the past 10 years, so When I started the magazine, I was 23, um, and, you know, your stereotypical backpacker, um, really finding the cheapest hostels possible and, you know, having beers and going and meeting different people on a really loose schedule. Um, And then, yeah, I think the, the whole concept of backpacker has kind of changed as my travel style has changed. And I've met lots of different types of people who consider themselves backpackers, whether they are in their 60s and they're sort of taking an older gap year or couples and then you have the whole digital nomad scene where people you know take their laptop on the road and work and that's kind of a different kind of backpacking um so I think we're sort of talking to all of these groups now it's not kind of just your scrimp and saving budget traveler um it's it's flash packers as well it's gap yearers so yeah a whole different sort of the whole word the word incorporates a lot of a lot of different people these days, I think.
1: What are some of those kind of off-the-beaten-track places that appeal to those independent,
4: adventurous backpackers that you deal with? So, um, like, the north of Laos, so around Luang Nam Thar, sort of getting up into the mountains there, there's amazing scenery. You've got these kind of huge limestone cast mountains at the side of um, the river, Um, and that's amazing for trekking, and there's, like, kind of rock-climbing scenes starting... Um, so yeah, definitely northern Laos, um, and then kind of you know you've got your your hot spots of in Vietnam, Hanoi, Hoi An, and that. Um, but it's really kind of it's it's really easy to sort of get off the beaten track, even just getting on a motorbike and going half an hour away from the main touristy trail. You'll find you'll find little villages and, and places. Um, so yeah, we were in Hoi An for couple of we were there for two months a few months ago and um, we hired bicycles and went all around like the little villages um like the vegetable gardens of Trake and it's definitely not pronounced Trake it's Chauway, i think but <laughs> yeah. the vietnamese accent is impossible to yeah yeah difficult so, um so yeah i would just say like find your own little nooks and crannies for sure yeah there's a place that's not so far from um from Hoi An, uh, Kun Mo, which is kind of like a sort of hill tribe region of Vietnam, which is becoming a bit more of a kind of well-known on the backpacker trail. But it's um, yeah, there's so many places off the beach. Even though these, you know, it's kind of a well-trodden trail, it's really easy to. To still go off the beaten track and people are staring at you and going, What are these foreigners? What are these yes. foreigners doing here? This isn't the this
1: isn't the tourist area. Well, the thing about Southeast Asia is that they are so friendly. Yeah,
4: yeah. They, it's, it's difficult to find a more friendly region to uh, <laughs> backpack through.
1: In terms of value for money backpacking through those areas, it's just incredibly
4: cheap. So yeah, it's uh it's I mean you can get dorm beds for three dollars i think in vietnam we've just been updating some of our guides at the moment and like as cheap as three dollars um a meal you know a dollar so it's super cheap to travel through and great value for money and i think as as it's Become more popular. Um, like there's some incredible hostels that are more like you know they really know what backpackers want. They're super comfortable, great beds and showers and everything. And it's still you know you're paying five up to five dollars for these places. So it's yeah great value for money, especially when you come back to Europe and. You know, we sort of arrived back in Spain the other day and we're looking at hotels and it's like, right, yeah, no, we can't get anything near the airport for less than like $100. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and you're sure. like, oh, back in the real world. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely to be appreciated. Like Western food, obviously, is going to be more expensive. Um, I've known some travelers who are a little bit afraid of eating in eating the street food and in the local markets, but like I've... I, apart from a little bit of an upset stomach like i've never really been ill um and it's just the best food the cheapest food and the nicest experiences you're going to have so much appreciation from the, the, the the local people that you're eating there and stuff and it's um yeah the best experiences that we had so people listening to this podcast that are inspired to backpack where can we find you uh, it's southeastasiabackpacker.com is the website, um, and we've got a Facebook community where people, there's lots of travellers, Southeast Asia backpacker community basically, um, and there's people asking each other questions and advice. So, if you're looking to travel, that's a great place to meet travel buddies and chat kind of thing. So,
1: how good is social media for that?
4: Yeah, it really makes you feel like you're, you know, you're not alone, even if you're going backpacking totally solo you really have got a whole community out there of people going to give you advice and support and yeah it's so easy to meet people in Southeast Asia anyway so thinking actually just to mention before I go uh, if you're interested in writing for us um, we have a lot of opportunities to go and review hostels for free or review trips and things like that Um, so if you are interested in writing and you want to sort of write about your travels and possibly get the opportunity to review things while you travel um, we have a newsletter you can sign up to and find out about free opportunities and it's kind of like we're trying to create a whole uh, kind of like a wikipedia of (laughs) sort of like backpackers Uh, collaborating with all this information for each other and then also getting some of the perks of being able to stay in places and do dive trips and things for free because there's only two of us running the website and we can't do all of this so it's great to get loads of people involved that's what we're trying to do at the minute.
2: Thanks, Nikki, and I don't think you'll have any trouble finding people keen to tell their story or review an activity or hostel. Links in
1: the show notes. Yes, speaking of helping out amid that sense of community, Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos still have many challenges. So we're about to chat to the founder of a charity, Karen Leonard, but a warning, there's a little bit of static in the, in the interview, which happens when you're recording stuff over the phone and Skype, doesn't it? Just par for the course of the uh, podcasting. You're being very generous. I think
2: it's user error by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry.
1: Uh, the Life Start Foundation is a grassroots not-for-profit charity helping disadvantaged Vietnamese people and their families to become self-sufficient. Am I on the money, Karen?
5: You are. You are. Yes. So we're an NGO or a charity based in central Vietnam. And our main focus is working with disadvantaged and disabled people and helping them to become self-sufficient. So how do you do that? How do we do that? Via um, several programs. Our biggest project is education scholarships. So We find in order to break the poverty cycle, it's a a generational change. There's no quick fix or Band-Aid fixes. So education, um, taking kids who are from super poor families and getting them through their education to the end of Year 12. And in our case, then we take them on through university. And it's really not until they've completed a degree where there's a – a pathway for employment that you're not you're really breaking the poverty cycle um i know you you do a lot with um people with disability why is there
1: um Mm -hmm. a, a correlation between disability and poverty
6: um
5: i the the problem is that in well in particular in vietnam there's no government assistance that we would call real assistance. So if a family has a disabled member born into the family, then they often don't get access to education. That means then they can't find employment. Depending on the severity of the disability, one family member then needs to stay home to care for the disabled person. So um, it's this compounding effect where you've got... um, one person who's disabled that needs to be fed and cared for, and then another family member who can't be an income earner who then becomes the carer, and then without any sort of assistance, that puts a lot of stress and pressure, obviously, on the rest of the family.
2: Sounds like the absolute definition of a vicious cycle. That one, that yeah, was how you out. it spirals down.
5: It absolutely is, and and if obviously if you if it, you're a, a disabled person born into a poor family, it's you know, it, it is that it, that cycle that's incredibly hard to break. I know, Will the stats say that in the
1: 90s, poverty in Vietnam was halved and halved again in 2004. So here we are
5: in 2018. Mm-hmm. Why is there still this need? Well, that's a good question, and I'd have to wonder where the stats came from, I suppose. Um, if... You know, to the tourist, the visitor that's, you know, perhaps visiting Vietnam for the first or the third time and they're only visiting the tourist areas, it appears to be doing really well and really affluent in parts. But in my opinion... that doesn't trickle down to the poor people. If you venture out of tourist towns only a few kilometres, you'll still see people that are living hand-to-mouth. This would be the vast majority of people live hand-to-mouth and nothing's changed since the war.
1: So how do you then mm. identify children that are bright or children that could benefit mm. from education? How do you find these people?
5: Well, because we've been doing it for so long, it's 18 years now, we work with... Um, schools and school principals and teachers in our province so we've got at least 40 schools that we work with they know our criteria which to get a scholarship one of our scholarships means the child has to display academic excellence be from a super poor family and our th- third criteria is a desire to give back to the community by way of their chosen vocation. So what are the success stories? Well we've got our first doctor has graduated wow. and he started as a scholarship with us in secondary school. We've seen him through um, medical university so it's a long process. That's a 12-year scholarship with us and he's just graduated he's a doctorate at the women's and children's hospital in Dunang, and now specializing in pediatric oncology so we're thrilled to pieces with him we've got our first lawyer graduated first environmental scientist first architect so with the scholarship program process it's really long it's around about 12 years particularly if they're going to do medicine they take it as this you know huge challenge and are so determined
2: anybody listening to this right now unless they're a brick and have got um, no emotions whatsoever will be going okay so how do i help what can i do and, I, and a lot of people who travel to vietnam will be going well i've got to help these people so what is the right way of helping and the wrong way i know uh, you know you'll see kids on the street selling um, trinkets. Is it the right thing to do to help them out or not?
5: That is absolutely the wrong thing to do because what you're doing is perpetuating that industry, unfortunately. If tourists don't buy from children on the street, then the parents are more likely to keep their children in school. There are a lot of street kids that are exploited, sadly, by family members um, to earn an income because they're cute and tourists will give them money. But by buying from them, you're supporting that industry of child exploitation. If you're travelling to Vietnam, seek out a a reputable charity, do your homework before you travel and, you know, find find an organisation that resonates with you and your ethos and speak to them beforehand about how you could help or support them
2: just one other one a little bit out of your scope okay but orphanages visiting yep. orphanages i that's i've got that's a, a no opinion go. about this one don't do it
5: yeah i'm really passionate about this phil um that again the the boom in or the growth in orc- orphanages, particularly in Cambodia, but certainly in other Southeast Asian countries, is due to the need for Western tourists to go and have some sort of interaction with um, kids in an orphanage. So my advice is that should be an absolute no-go. The kids often are not orphans, but they're put into these places because... They'll get gifts and um, they're treated to things um, by visiting tourists. So often, children are relinquished into an orphanage and they've got a family. Um, it is absolutely the the wrong thing to be doing. And you know, it's like it's like anywhere. Would would you be able to do that in your own country? I think people need to do a check and balance before they do these what they think are well-meaning acts but if it doesn't sit right in your country and it does, you wouldn't allow it with your children, then what makes it okay when you're travelling? It's terribly sad, but through Southeast Asia, that would be a common, common problem. So, again, it's a matter of being armed with information rather than being ignorant and, you know, travelling. And, and, and I'm not saying people are wanting to do the right thing, don't get me wrong, but there's a way to do that and there's a wrong way to do it.
1: And we will share the right way to do it in show notes. Now, still to come in this episode, what you need to consider before planning to ride a motorbike in Southeast Asia. But speaking of the right way to travel and doing it ethically, our next guest, Ashley, is a wildlife conservationist who's doing amazing work, not just in Southeast Asia, but right around the world.
6: So I've volunteered quite a few countries. I recently returned from Vietnam where I volunteered for Save Vietnam's Wildlife. Um, which specializes in pangolin rescue and release back to the wild. I also volunteered over in the Maldives with the whale shark research program. I've also volunteered over in Africa for um, an organization called CARE, the Center for Animal Rehabilitation and Education, which focuses on baboons. And I've spent quite a lot of time in America, particularly lately with my, my studies Um, looking at the human dimensions of wildlife conservation. So I've been um, visiting lots of zoos and aquariums there and seeing how they can better improve the um, conservation messages that they're sending out to all their guests.
1: Okay, well this particular podcast is on Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. The treatment of animals in that particular region, what would your reaction be to that type of question?
6: there are some some gems among the roughage. there are some really good conservation organizations that are doing some great work in those countries um, but there are there are a lot of issues because they're low socioeconomic countries the 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 people that live in those countries um, do what they have to to survive a lot of the time and you know it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs when your personal needs aren't met, then you can't really think um, beyond yourself to the conservation of other species. And unfortunately that's quite um, relevant um, to a lot of those countries. They they can't put food on the table for their children and their families. Um, So if it means that they need to go and, and poach animals from the wild, then that's something that they do because they have to. And if that means taking animals from the wild, um and using them for tourist attractions to try and get income to put food on the table for their family, then that's something that they're, they'll be willing to do as well. Unfortunately, you do see quite a lot of um attractions that target animal-loving tourists because uh, there are some really amazing exotic animals in these countries. Southeast Asia is a, a biodiversity hotspot. They have heaps of incredible and unique species. And it's one of the reasons people go to Southeast Asia is to see a lot of these species. And if you are an animal lover and you get the opportunity to to get up close to some of these really incredible species, you're probably going to take that opportunity. Um, so one thing that I do is I run a social media campaign. It's called the Wildlife Friendly Traveller. And it aims to demystify some of the issues around whether your actions as a tourist are supporting wildlife conservation or whether they're contributing to the exploitation of wildlife. And it's really hard to know if a a place is legitimately supporting conservation or whether they're telling you this story, but in reality they're actually exploiting the wildlife, which happens all too often. So we try to help people um, sieve through some of the um, the muddy areas um, and allow them to make the best decisions that they can as a tourist in particularly in Southeast Asia yeah, for instance, riding an elephant mm-hmm. is not all it's cut out to be it's a really tricky issue so generally um, my my personal stance and that of um, wildlife friendly traveler is that any elephant experience that involves riding of the elephant is one that should be avoided. And the reason for that is the process to get the animals to the point where they can be ridden, the process of breaking in the elephant per se, is absolutely brutal. And what those elephants endure, being caught from the wild, being beaten into submission in order to become tame enough to be ridden by tourists, is an absolutely horrific process. Um, and it, it really, really does, um, put a a lot of physical and emotional, um, strain on those animals. The condition of life that they lead is atrocious. They're often chained up most of the day with very little access to food or water. They often have really bad injuries around where the chains are. So it is something that, that should be avoided. Having said that, I recently went to, a uh, what was called an elephant sanctuary, I'm hesitant to call it an elephant sanctuary because it was not really um, a very nice place. Um, this was actually in Sumatra, so a little bit outside of, yeah. of Vietnam, laos and Cambodia. But the only time those elephants got let off their chains was when someone came to ride them. It was the only time they got to stretch. It was the only time they got to eat food from the forest as they were walking along. And if someone wasn't there riding that elephant, it was standing on a piece of concrete with a chain around its legs in the full sun with no food and no water. So the only time it got to do anything close to a natural behavior was when someone was riding it, Um, which is really difficult because um, that sort of goes against our no-riding philosophy, um, that the only time those elephants were um, able to be you know fed and exercised was when someone was riding them but there are a couple of good sanctuaries um in southeast asia and if you really do your research then um read as many reviews as you can see if they're genuinely rescuing elephants or whether they're breeding them or whether they're capturing them from the wild that's a really important point there's a good website waspinternational.com um which has helped take the guesswork out of out of some of those issues that can be really helpful as well
1: You mentioned the particular animal that you were um, in Vietnam volunteering for. You'll tell me what you you did. Hmm.
6: I believe this particular animal is one of the most traded animals in the world. It is the most trafficked animal in the world, number one. Wow. So what is it again? It is the pangolin. And I've
1: seen pictures of it and it just looks weird. What are you going to do with it? (laughs)
6: <laughs> yeah, they, they're they scaly mammals. They're one of the only scaly mammals in the world. And unfortunately, that is their downfall. Unfortunately, um, there are some beliefs among some cultures that the scales have medicinal value. Um, the scientific proof has, has shown that that's not really true. They're made of keratin, which is the same as what our fingernails are made of. So essentially eating pangolin scales is the same as eating fingernails. However, the scales are by far the most high value part of that animal. And that is what is driving the trade in that animal. They're traded by the ton. And this is a little animal. It's most similar to an anteater in appearance. It's, it's small with a really long nose, a really long tongue a long tail, and a scaly body.
1: What about uh, Laos and Cambodia? Anything from yeah. there
6: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, Sunda pangolin are often found in, in Laos or Cambodia um, and transported across to China as well. As a tourist, you're never going to have any issues with pangolins. It's not something that's going to affect your experience in Vietnam, Laos or Cambodia at all, you probably would go on a holiday there and come home and still not even know that pangolins exist.
1: But do you research before you jump on the back of an elephant?
6: Absolutely. And also before buying civet coffee. Traditionally, the civets would come through a coffee plantation and have a nibble on the coffee beans and poop out The coffee beans and a farmer accidentally discovered that if you roast up those poop beans, they make a really cool tasting coffee. Unfortunately, a lot of places have very poor caged conditions um, that they make the civets live in. And the civets are force fed huge amounts of coffee beans as their only Mm -hmm. food, which is very unnatural. In the wild, it would make up a very small percentage of their their natural diet but the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the places that will tell you the best story they'll say you know we're an amazing um free range wild civet place unfortunately a lot of those ones are the ones that actually have the worst behind the scenes doing great work ashley well done a lot to think about there
1: phil Uh, in traveling ethically not jumping on the back of um, elephants yep thinking about uh going to zoos and aquariums
2: well funny you should mention that because i've got something about that right now travel news. Have you? Alright, let me just skip through to that one. Anybody who's visited the Greek island of Santorini will know one of the most popular tourist activities there is to ride a donkey from the port up to the town up about 500 steps. Problem is, all the donkeys are being injured, they can't carry the weight, especially of the obese tourists who are turning up. These donkeys are only supposed to carry about 50 kilos, which is about 112 pounds. So you can imagine what's happening to the poor things. The locals have even tried uh, crossbreeding the donkeys with mules so that they can carry the weight much better than that. But you know what? It's 500 steps. Just walk it. Don't ride the donkeys. You'll appreciate it. Uh, Look, as we're putting this podcast together, a bit of bad news, I'm sorry. A second major earthquake in a week has struck the Indonesian island of Longbok, this one's killed as many as eighty-two. Uh, at, is at th- the
1: time of recording. At it.
2: the time of recording, it uh, Longbok is an island neighbouring the very popular destination of Bali, which we all know about. But it's a relatively popular destination too. Uh, luckily for travellers there, though the quake is centred on the other side of the island, some fifty miles away, where the tri- tremor where the tourist average class is light although doesn't look like it from the damage that we no. uh, have seen on TV coverage. Not such good news for the main town on the island and, of course, the Indonesians living close to the epicentre. So our uh, thoughts are with them right now. And whilst we're on Vietnam, a new tourist attraction has opened in the Ba Na Hills behind Da Nang in Vietnam. It's essentially a semi-circular viewing platform or like a bridge with amazing views over the district, a treetop sort of, you know, experience yeah. there. But they've incorporated... Uh, into the bridge a sculpture which is a pair of giant hands that look like they're holding the bridge up i've shown you a picture of it there yeah it,
1: it looks amazing in fact it reminds me of something you're more likely to see in berlin yeah in vietnam it's yes. it's it's cool it's, it's really, really cool, cool.
2: There lots and lots of photos we'll put some in the show notes for you to have a look at
1: and so that's new
2: uh, opened about a month ago.
1: Oh, Don't tell me that we don't have the latest news on this Oh, that's podcasts. it. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Phil. Thanks.
2: All right. I know we, we've skirted around the issue a couple of times, Kim, but we, what we really need to do is find out about one of the most asked questions we had on WorldNome is about, can you ride a motorbike or a motor scooter in Vietnam and how do you get a licence to do so? Now, I've got some pretty strong, I've done a lot of research, <laughs> I've got some pretty strong opinions about whether you can or not, but... We always like to go to the insider, the local source. So, joining us in the studio right now, is
0: Steph Hendry, who you've been living there for the last four years, Steph. Yep. Just doing what? Uh, working at an international school in Hanoi as a uh, special education teacher.
1: Wow. Nice gig. What brings you back to World Nomads well, headquarters, being Sydney?
0: Well, I'm only here for two more days, and then I'm moving to Morocco. Oh, of okay. Course. To Casablanca. So, we're do back. the same sort of thing? Uh, yeah, exactly the same sort of thing. Wow. But, uh, so. We've, uh, four years, the kids have sort of grown tired of the pollution and so have we in Hanoi and uh, we thought let's do something different.
2: I was just reading about that actually, speaking of motorbikes, they're actually talking about banning motorbikes in Hanoi by 2030. Have you heard that one?
0: Uh, it was 2025 and they, <laughs> they've just realised that they won't work so they're putting it back to 2030. plan is to replace it all with uh, public transport. Since they took the tax off cars, there was a 100% import tax. Yep. About five years ago, they're getting an average of 50,000 cars on the road each month? Oh.
1: Yeah, but having been in a car from uh, Ho Chi Minh to Nay there's two lanes, Phil. Yeah. But there's three ga- cars going one way, <laughs> three coming the other way, and one down the middle.
0: Right. But it's a scary experience. Well, which brings me to... Well, plus you've got, before you get to the yeah, licenses, yeah. plus you've got the electric bikes coming on the roads okay. now, and a lot of the kids are riding those to and from school, and they just are on the highways and everywhere, so it's really dangerous. <laughs> So the point. whole traffic system works on, it's called yield and forgive. No matter what anyone does in front of you, you give way and you then forgive them.
1: Yield and forgive.
0: So the amount of times you nearly get killed by somebody and you go, okay. Yeah, sorry. And as an Australian, you want to beat the horn. Oh, the, there's them.
1: heaps of horn beeping. <laughs> well, the horn,
0: horn beeping just to let you know they're coming. There's yeah, no okay. road rage.
1: I didn't realise. I thought the well, beeping was There's actually a
2: law against road rage in uh, the Emirates. So, so is there a law against it or is it just the, the cuss of just the practice?
0: There are laws... For lots of things, but there's no enforcement of laws. <laughs> so, and, oh, stupid.
2: What was I thinking? Well,
1: yeah. And like Cassie was saying when yeah. we chatted to her about, you know, travelling through Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, they, they take bribes. Yeah. Don't they?
0: Yeah, especially around Tet. Yeah. That, that's when you get pulled over a lot. Uh, because they need the spending. My money wife got holiday. pulled over for not indicating, okay. which in Hanoi is hilarious. And while she was, <laughs> while she was like waiting for the policeman to, you know, finish yelling at her. And he's holding his hand out. There are people going the wrong way past them. Yeah. So she, he's like trying to explain or educate. So then she took her helmet off, and he's seen that she's a Westerner, and she just like threw you know ten thousand dong at him and rode off. Which yeah, is which, what you do.
1: Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> like exactly. That. It's what you do. So that,
0: what's that? Couple of bucks? Five bucks? Oh, like Fifty not, cents. Yeah.
1: Fifty, 50 cents. Is nothing. Yeah. yeah. What, anyway. what is the rule with alcohol and scooters?
0: So that's a good one. I was asking some students. <laughs> About how old you have to be to drink. And the general consensus was when you look old enough to drink, you can drink. And if you're a Westerner, you can drink and, anytime you want. And get on your bike. So there's no breath testing. Um, if you're in a crash, it it doesn't really matter. So what we're told by um, government agencies, let's just say, I won't say which ones, yeah. uh, that if there's a crash, get away yes. as quickly as you can. Because no matter what, who's at fault, you will pay an extremely high chance of a motorcycle accident in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, my girlfriend's yeah. had one. My son nearly came a cropper with a bus. It's it's real so for anyone listening that's thinking about it, it don't uh, take it lightly.
2: No. Well, that's one of the things that, you know, it's I actually wrote out safety advice as well. It's like if you don't already know how to ride a motorbike, oh. Hanoi is not the place to learn.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: It's not. So what are the rules then around licenses?
0: So, uh We had, I had a motorcycle license before, an Australian one before I left. Uh, It doesn't translate to Vietnamese, so you're not licensed. There's no international licenses aren't recognised in Vietnam. If you're staying for more than three months, you can convert your Australian license to a Vietnamese through the help of the embassy in Hanoi, or there's a consulate in uh, Ho Chi Minh. But if you're not, you can just you can do the license test. But that process takes a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a you, and it's also and you have to be there. There's a waiting list for it, and everything as well. You need okay. to be on a work visa as well, generally. Right. But um, I know a lot of people that have been there for three or four years plus with no license. And you see, but well, this is the problem.
2: You see, because for in insur- travel insurance, well, you never, yeah, you'd you're not insured because no. you're not licensed. So, yeah, you're not going to get caught. Yeah, you're only going to pay fifty cent fine. But if you do get cleaned up and you need evacuating back home. Um, you know, and the hundred thousand dollar emergency medical evacuation it's not covered. Why is
1: it in places like Southeast Asia that you'll get a little scooter and you'll have six family members on it, including a tiny baby?
0: Well, why is it only the adults have the helmets? That's what oh, no, I know that's, uh, that's exactly what <laughs> that's I was, was going to say. Wonder.
1: And apparently, the helmets
0: though aren't accredited. So they brought in a law saying you have to wear a helmet. I'm not sure how long ago it was, and so the response was unanimously negative like why would we need helmets and you're right the helmets i think you can buy them for about forty four dollars probably so, yeah <laughs> um they're, they're terrible <laughs> but what happens on big roads like vochi kong or something where 10 lanes of traffic the police will set up a check a helmet checking station it's like an rbt here yeah. yeah and so a couple hundred meters before that a guy will set up a stall renting helmets and a couple hundred meters after <laughs> you return them. you return it <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, awesome it's, it's, it's to an watch. Entre- entrepreneur at work. Yeah. You know, he's seen a need, and it's
0: just—it's just great. The Vietnamese—they have a way around everything. And week. the guy
2: renting the helmets is the cop's cousin or something. Yeah, it, you know, know. Oh.
1: there are companies though that do tours, bike tours, where yep. you're a pillion passenger. Yep. I'm guessing you would be covered in that situation. Yeah,
2: licensed yep. operators, all that sort of stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's um, Wide eyed Tours. They do really good ones. Uh, I have. Been on day ones with them where you ride along with them. But I've had friends that went on the northern Vietnam one as pillion passengers, and they love that. And you stay in houses with families, and they really, really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. And tell us about that company. You mentioned when you first arrived at the studio. Well,
0: yeah. So one of the things about Vietnam is there is no air pollution because when it's bad, they just turn the monitors off. Um, (laughs) And there's no – I work in special education. It's been a real battle getting them to recognise things like autism as being a real condition. Yep. Um, but there are people who have started charities. This uh, Australian, um, Mike, I can't think of his last name, Prozlowski or something, he came over in 2005 and started a charity called Blue Dragon. And one of the things they do, they help a lot of kids and orphans, but they um, rescue a lot of women from uh, sex trafficking in China. They get taken from Vietnam to China. And another offshoot of Blue Dragon is VIP Bikes, which is a guy called Andrew Suto. And he um, got there in 2005 and saw a lot of – he's a regist- licensed mechanic and he found a lot of kids – on the streets, who needed skills, and so he's, he upskills them, he teaches them, does an apprenticeship for them, charges really reliable, uh, really cheap rates for really reliable bikes, yeah. And that's a big problem with the rental places where all the tourists are. You get cheap rentals, but the bikes break down, and there's no service, so you can be stuck in the middle of nowhere. What are you going to miss the most? Oh, the people, without a doubt. Um, we we working with the school went out on a lot of uh, sort of trips out into the countryside and met kids at schools and. Uh, those are amazing. So, well,
1: later yeah. in the podcast, we'll touch on a foundation that's actually helping um, within the poor communities um, identify bright kids, people that would normally miss out on an education, and. Um and offer it to them through scholarships.
2: Mate, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you.
1: Yeah, awesome, Steph. Always great to have someone live in the studio. It it's just makes it fun, feel real, isn't isn't doesn't it? it? Yeah, it's yeah, fun. It's, it's really great. fun. Phil, the answer to your quiz question, we kick off an episode with this uh, each time and then um, we finish it with the answer.
2: Okay. Uh, how many people go up the Eiffel Tower every year? Six billion. Woo! Six million people. I did the math. So, you know, if you average it out over the year, which it doesn't because, of course, summertime is the most. Yeah, the peak. The peak time. That's like
1: th- 16,000 people a day. Have you been up it? I have. It's fantastic. No, I walked sort of pa- past it, if that makes sense. Uh, Obviously, yeah. you know, I really stood like in front that of
2: area it. around there as well. Yeah, it's really Actually, nice. when you cross over the Seine onto the other side, that's quite a nice district around
1: there. That is where um, Princess Diana um, was in her car accident.
2: No, I thought that was over near the Louvre, wasn't it? On that tunnel there? I'm pretty be
1: wrong. sure. No, so, okay, let's right, pretend. I'm now Googling <laughs> let's pretend. where Princess Diana died. Let's pretend you're the the Eiffel Tower.
2: I'm being the Eiffel Tower. You, and you, you can't see, but I'm holding <laughs> my hands by <above> my head.
1: <laughs> and you walk down and you cross the little bridge.
2: So you're now heading down towards, towards
1: the Champs-Élysées.
2: Right, okay.
1: Yep, is oh, that so where you're thinking? That's the road there. Yeah. Okay. All that's right. the tunnel and there's a whole sort of memorial to her and you can actually, um, you know, write on it and leave your message. Fair enough. Is that the direction you were talking?
2: No, I thought it was elsewhere. But, I, you know, I'm not always right. <laughs> Look.
1: Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yes, he i tell you what I
2: have done in Paris. I've been to Jim Morrison's grave.
1: Ooh. Where did you that, find that?
2: Oh, it's in the Père Lachaise Cemetery just uh, north of the main city. Right. Um, and that's – there's always – you know flowers and arrangements there and lots of graffiti on his headstone and what have you
1: how cool hey speaking of the i know we're venturing far and wide but speaking of those kinds of things i was in munich and came across this um shrine to michael jackson and trying where
2: he dangled his son yes it was really it
1: was it was where he (laughs) dangled his son blanket outside the window You can access the World Nomads podcast on Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio and iTunes where you can rate, share and subscribe. Now, next week, it's a bit of a special, though. We're um, not focusing so much on amazing nomads or a destination as such.
2: One of our most popular travel insiders guides is the Thailand safety guide and we've revamped it. So we're going to have another look at Thailand through the lens of, you know, some of the weird laws there, like you're not allowed to go out without wearing underwear. Seriously, who's checking your underwear? <laughs> what police officer's doing that? Can't
1: wait for this episode. Uh,
2: and a bunch of quirky stuff like that. But it's really, I mean, it's such a popular destination while we're talking Southeast Asia. It's really important to understand how to stay safe there so that you have the best experience
1: you can. So we'll talk about that. Excellent. That's next time. Contact us too by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. See ya. Bye. The
0: World Nomads Podcast.
3: Explore your boundaries.